Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight is on Joe Satriani. Joe Satriani is the world's most commercially successful solo guitar performer, with the accolades and record sales to prove it. I caught up with Joe from his home in San Francisco for a conversation about the challenges and opportunities presented by the events of 2020. We covered a lot of other ground too, and if there's a Hall of Fame for being down to earth, Joe's in on the first ballot. Here for yourself. Speaking of San Francisco, um, how are you holding up there? Are you doing okay? Yeah, we're safe. Uh, you know, we're not in any fire danger here in the city. Uh, the smoke is really bad. You know, the air quality is really bad. So, uh, you know, we've been inside. We, we've got a bunch of HEPA filters running, and uh, we, we uh, don't go out jogging or anything like that. Yeah, it's it doesn't look as bad, you know. It's kind of foggy, like it usually is in in late summer. Usually, by this time, this you know the fog s- starts to fade, and we get uh, that beautiful September, October weather here in the city. But um, that's not happening now. We've got this huge fog bank, and then we've got the smoke that is coming from either a northern fire, a southern fire, or an eastern fire, and uh, we just you know we're just praying for a westerly wind to uh, at least get it out of the city so um yeah so for now you know i stay in this little room most of the time <laughs> playing my guitar yeah it's funny you say i'm in a very similar situation i'm, I'm up in seattle and uh oh. we've got the smoke coming from the east and we've got it coming up from the south and um there's a fog layer sitting on top of us and we're just we're stuck in that sort of sludgy smoke and uh and like you, I'm sort of, I'm just trying to camp out inside and uh, catch up on projects. And, uh, you know, every time this, this sort of shelter in place thing or, or, or stay home order um, takes another turn of the screw, I just try to meet it with, well, it's, it's another thing I'm going to get to check off the to-do list I've been letting accumulate for the, <laughs> the last 20 years. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot, lot of that going on. Everyone's stuck at home doing those projects. Yeah. Speaking of San Francisco, one thing that... Um, in preparation for this call, uh, the one question I couldn't get an answer to in advance was, how and why San Francisco? What was what was your choice as a young man to go from Westbury, New York, to San Francisco? Oh, um, well, I'm the youngest of five kids, and uh, my two older sisters, twin sisters, uh, are artists, and they actually made the trek out west, um, and we're about nine years apart. So as I was still... Um, I'm thinking I was maybe in a, a 11th grade in high school uh, at Car Place High School on Long Island. Uh, they had already started to go to Europe or go out west, and they kind of landed in Berkeley, California, and really liked it. So we kept getting reports like, this is the best place ever, you know. And you have to understand the cultural difference between Long Island and Berkeley, California in uh in the 70s was huge i mean it was just really huge and uh so that sort of feeling of elation and liberation that they felt being there uh was reported back to us young younger siblings and so 
each one of us made the trek out. I think I drove out with one of my sisters uh, uh, the summer before my senior year. That was the first time I went out there and, and, and hung out in Marin County for about a month. And uh, then decided to go back out there after a, a failed attempt at uh, musical education outside high school. I lasted one semester at a place called Five Towns College on Long Island. And uh, once I landed in Berkeley, California, I had that same feeling, which was the West Coast was magical uh, for a kid that grew up in New York. And uh, so uh, I wound up there. I kind of had some diversions here and there. I lived in Japan a little bit, went back to New York a little bit, but just months here, months there. But I really did connect with Berkeley, California. And uh, I met uh, the woman who became my wife back then and, and in 77, and uh, we've been together ever since, and we lived in Berkeley and then moved to San Francisco, I guess it was r right after the Flying in a Blue Dream tour, so that would have been 1990, and, uh, and we've been here ever since. So uh, it, it's been a, a really great experience for me, although I have to say I still am not really used to the fog. <laughs> it's it's you know san francisco has got an edge to it the weather that it's just i never you know growing up in the east coast you 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 used to when it's hot it stays hot when it's cold it stays cold and so it's easy to put on the, the appropriate clothing or the lack of it and spend all day out and you never feel like you you did the wrong thing here in san francisco you need like three different kinds of clothing if you're going to be out for six, so you know six or eight hours, I mean, it's this. It never stays the same. It goes from you know 57 degrees with with uh, biting fog, and all of a sudden it's 75, and there's no wind, and it just keeps swinging back and forth. And yeah, um, it's, 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 I'm from Connecticut. I'm from outside of New Haven, and um, I didn't realize. And it's funny when you talk to people back east, they don't realize. Like they think of you know. July in New York or New England, it's that hot, muggy, you know, sort of <laughs> the buildings are sweating kind of weather. In San Francisco, it's like the coldest time of year. It is. Up here in Seattle, yeah. too, like you get those first few hours in the morning and like the sun doesn't come out to burn everything off till close to noon, you know? Yeah. So, it's so, it is different. Yeah. What was, uh, what was Westbury like? And did you feel more of the suburban pull? Or did you and your family have any gravitational pull towards the city? Oh, well, my parents um, were, you know, kids of immigrants that came over from Italy in uh, 1906, 1907. And they, uh, my father grew up in Manhattan and my mother in the Bronx. And so they were city kids. And so after the war, you know, they did what, uh, uh, you know, William J. Levitt uh, promised all the returning vets uh, to do, which is come out to the suburbs to this new way of living. And uh, so they bought a, you know, a small family house in the middle of old potato fields, which was a little part of Westbury that was part of the Carl Place School District. You know, which is which is why after failed attempts of me surviving Catholic school, I wound up. Uh, being the only kid in the family to to successfully make the transition to public school where I thrived, you know, and uh, so that was Car Place. So my mentality of growing up was Car Place, even though my address said Westbury. Uh, 
I loved it. I have to say my memories of childhood uh, are early in the morning, you know, my mother opening the door, the front door, the back door and saying, go out and play and don't come back until you hear me, you know, yell for lunch. And so, you know, my, as my older siblings all left and they were so much fun as sort of co-parents, but as they went on to school, uh, my time alone was uh, fascinating. I just loved it. And we were outside all the time. And I lived on a, a street that probably at one time had 60, 70, 80 kids that would, you know, the doors would open in the morning and all the kids would pile out and it was just kids playing, getting into trouble, but nothing serious, you know? And uh, so I look back on it now, you know, having, uh, I'm a parent now. And, and I remember uh, when my son was young, the thought of opening the door and saying, come back for lunch, forget it. <laughs> it never happened. So, uh, yeah, I, I had a charmed upbringing in a typical suburban uh, uh, little neighborhood uh, car place, Westbury, Long Island, and had tons of fun, was able to explore becoming a musician, played in bands in high school, and started touring uh, the East Coast when I was 18 and, you know, became a professional musician quite early. So um, I, it, it seems like a fantasy land compared to now, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. but uh, my, all my relatives were still in Manhattan or the Bronx. So that means every weekend, which was typical for most families like that, um, of that generation, you always go to see the grandparents uh, in the city. Yep. And uh, so that, that stayed that way until the late 80s, until that whole generation started to pass on. And I'm assuming sort of a very, that sort of very Italian Sunday mid mid late afternoon meal the big family everybody running around the the older kids doing their thing the younger kids running around the parents in the other room sort of that whole vibe yeah yeah it was it was different though because it's it's interesting the street where my father was born and where he lived and where his mother refused to leave until she was 96 was 104th street between 1st and 2nd avenue so that's spanish harlem I think the rent there was $85. I mean, they'd been there since 1930 something, you know, it was just bizarre to think about it. But, uh, my, my father's mother just refused to leave. She just didn't, she didn't understand the suburbs. She just, she just wanted to stay in that apartment. And so that's, you know, and I, my introduction to Manhattan besides the museums and the subways and the trains and all that was that neighborhood and so which now you know in the 70s i remember bringing uh my wife there and it looked like films of poland during world war ii i mean it was <laughs> i think my the building where my grandmother was living was the only building that was occupied everything else was completely abandoned by the landlords and and hollowed out and uh i, I don't know if you'd been to new york city during the 70s but it was crazy it was fun but there were parts that were so completely devastated by the economic turmoil. And um, it was very hard to explain to my wife, who born and raised in Singapore, a very different uh, city-state, a very different environment. And But that was her introduction to the oddness of America, the disparity between the haves and have-nots, you know. But still, my memories of being there every every weekend are fantastic. 
And I know this is a little slightly off topic, but years later, when I get, I pass an audition to play with Mick Jagger. I'm, I stayed for about a month and a half in New York City at the Mayflower Hotel, May, Mayflower Hotel, uh, Mayflower Hotel. Um, and I saw a part of New York City that I didn't even know existed. Because up until then, it was my grandparents' place in Spanish Harlem. It was me going into 48th Street, taking the subway with my guitars, trying to get them repaired. It was playing dingy, scary clubs. It was just, you know, doing things, going to concerts as a young kid and taking the trains at four in the morning, just really crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's red carpet everywhere. And I'm going to these clubs and restaurants that I just thought, this is some other fantasy world. But it was mixed world, you know what I mean? And and I thought, oh, I get it. No wonder people love this place. I, I've been trying to get out of New York my whole life. <laughs> That's why people come here. <laughs> yeah. When I, anyway. I first moved to New York in the mid-90s, and I lived, uh, I lived down on the Lower East Side. And I tell people now, yeah, when I moved down there, there were not sushi restaurants and uh, you know vegan macrobiotic whatever it was. Uh, it's the only place I ever lived where um, you know you can't you can only see me from here up. But as a six foot tall, fairly large guy, um, it's the only place I ever lived where I felt scared after ten o'clock at night. Um, but it was a wonderful neighborhood. It was you know Dominican, West Indian, you know everything about New York that you know, like incredible food. You know, uh, I, I find New York to be the warmest city if you need help if you need directions if um i just I, I go to other cities and i'm shocked i think wow why does everybody think that as new yorkers we're so like mean and callous it's just we're just direct we're in a hurry <laughs> but yes. if you need something i think New Yorkers <laughs> rally um yeah that's incredible how how, how much of uh, being italian part of do you does that resonate for you is that part of your self-identity like do you connect with that part of your heritage well certainly uh being Italian American is an entirely different thing than being Italian. Uh, you know, when I tour, uh, well, in my other life, when I toured every year, uh, <laughs> I would I would always be, uh, uh, you know, playing uh, where my cousins are in in Milan and Como around there, and and so every time we visited the country, uh, they would uh, make the trek to come out, and then you know. My my crew would be ready because they knew that once we got to Italy, there would be 30 people on the guest list. <laughs> you know, usually there's like one or two when we're in Copenhagen or, or uh, you know, Madrid. But then we, we get to Milan and it's like under Joe Satriani, it's like 30 guests, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, so and there's such a difference between us. It's just it's crazy. You know, I mean, there's some physical similarities and, and all that. But. Uh, being Italian and being Italian American is just, you know, it's totally different. And, and so my experience is like, kind of like what you've seen uh, on TV and movies. Uh, sometimes it's absolutely hysterical. Like, like so I remember first time I was watching, uh, Seinfeld and the Costanzas, uh, you know, were featured in the episodes. And I was just like, you know, laughing and crying at the same time. Cause I thought, I know these characters, these are the characters that I would see every weekend and wonder like, why am I relative so insane? You know what? And, and because they were like the Costanzas, you know? Um, and, but that's not over. That's not what we found once we reconnected uh, uh, with our, our family back in the home country. The interestingly enough though, the, you know, my 
my genetic history is really quite different. And, and so what I've learned over the years is that, you know, we, we identify with where we grew up, you know, for you outside New Haven, for me on Long Island, it's, it's just a part of who we are. And we, we kind of bring that along. And if we have kids, we wind up, you know, in, uh, sending that message along to the kids and they think, yeah, my dad's like that, you know? Uh, and, um, but actually, especially if you're uh, European of European descent, if you dig deep enough, you realize, oh my God, this is like my relatives for the last two, three, four, five thousand years have been moving around like crazy, and I'm not really just that one thing. I'm I'm kind of a big mix, and uh, so I always take this sort of uh, uh, ethnic identity with a grain of salt because I I do know that where you grow up and and how you brought up by your parents is really the big thing and you can delude yourself into thinking you know i'm italian i'm estonian i'm whatever <laughs> but actually you, you're just kind of like where you grew up that that's really who you are you know uh, in terms of your personality and how you relate because we don't really express our genes to people like when we're giving an interview I, you know, we're not expressing our genes to each other we're actually just acting the way we were taught to act by our parents and our friends and our siblings growing up. So um, that's why I think, you know, two people start a conversation. It turns out they're both from the East coast. There's something to relate to. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and it would, it's different when I do interviews and on any given day and I'm talking to uh, somebody uh, in Amsterdam and then somebody in Tokyo and then somebody from New Haven it's a totally different experience, you know, uh, because we, we only know uh, our personalities are based on on where we grew up and, and how that process of growing up went, you know. So I do, it's a very long way of answering your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, to, along a similar vein, though, did you find that um, when you meet your family from the old country or even family members that maybe you didn't know as well, are there other artists? Artists, you know, I guess I, I, I would kind of summarize what you were saying as sort of the nature versus nurture thing or that, you know, your DNA isn't your destiny. Um, but have you had any of those moments where you're like, oh, you know, so and so from, you know, from the old country was immersed in art or makes his life as an art. Do you have those family connections or is it is it unique to how you were brought up given those opportunities and sort of post-war? Yeah. America? No, I, I think it's more it's more like. Uh the connection to my parents is stronger and my siblings. Uh, I suppose because I was the youngest, um, I really was the ultimate recipient of whatever the family dynamic was, you know, although I got away with the craziest stuff because my parents were so tired by the time I came along, <laughs> by the time it was, you know, by the time I was a teenager, they were like, okay, forget it. It's the seventies. We've given up, you know, uh, because they had raised kids all the way through the sixties. They'd been through the big, biggest upheaval that, uh, the last you know, century. What uh, you going to lay on them that two daughters who moved to Berkeley hadn't already laid on them. <laughs> well, you have to imagine. I remember at one dinner, uh, uh, September 18th, 1970, I stood up after dinner and I said, uh, my hero, Jimi Hendrix, has died, and I'm going to be a, a guitar player. That's what I'm going to do with my life. And, of course, there was silence, and then there was an eruption of argument <laughs> about what 
little Joe just said and what, what it meant and, you know, and just the fact they're thinking Jimi Hendrix, that crazy guy who just overdosed, you know what I mean? He's Joe's hero, <laughs> you know, fear and, and, uh, and love all mixed up and just, you know, so, but, you know, I, I think, uh, my my uh, father's older brother, Gino, was a musician his whole life. And th these are three brothers, my father and his three brothers. They grow up during, you know, they're, they're all born, uh, my father was born in 1917. So these three kids have to fend for themselves growing up where they did in Manhattan during the Depression. Uh, you know, I always think my father was born during, uh, at the end of World War One the Spanish flu epidemic, he gets ushered right into having to grow up during the d depression. Uh, he goes to, he graduates high school and college early because he's such a brainiac and he gets recruited immediately by uh, Sperry, I think it was, uh, to help in the war effort uh, designing things. Uh, so he's working right away uh, as a very young man, gets married, moves out to the suburbs, this whole time, his older brother, Gino, is an accordion player traveling the world uh, after, after the, the, the two other brothers are, are in the armed services, traveling the world as a musician. So my dad was like the straight guy out of the three brothers uh, because he had the smarts and he was an engineer his whole life. Um, so when that happened that night and I said I was going to be a musician, he wasn't really that shocked. What he knew was that I was going to have to practice and he'd already sort of instilled in me that, uh, that discipline because I was a drummer starting at nine and, and my parents had paid for a drum teacher to come over once a week and try to teach me how to play drums. And, uh, you know, my dad was the guy who would wake me up in the middle of the night if he found out I hadn't practiced and sit there and make me, uh, uh practice with my pajamas on, <laughs> you know, he instilled in me, uh, the discipline of, of what it was going to take to be a musician, a good musician. And if you're going to do it, then you really have to do it. So I, I was very fortunate that way in that the family, uh, the, the combination of them being so overwhelmed with what was happening in 1970 and, you know, a seven per my, my parents bringing up five kids. I mean, that was intense. Must've been very intense. Their whole world upside down. Everything they grew up with was challenged by the current generation and um so i i often think i got a bit of a free ride there you know what i mean i i, I wasn't forced to go to a particular school and learn a trade that i didn't like you know um uh, so uh yeah so here i am guitar player <laughs> yeah yeah still <laughs> so on, the, on the hendrix front um it's you know reading about you, hearing the things you've said in, in various forums, it's sort of hard to, you wouldn't be able to overstate the importance of Hendrix, I guess, um, in sort of your, your development. And uh, it's interesting, when I moved out here to Seattle, I had completely forgotten the Hendrix connection to Seattle, which, you know, it's, it, it's I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it, it's just, I don't, I don't think of Seattle when I think of, when I think of Jimi Hendrix and um, there's not a lot left in terms of the landmarks, you know, Seattle's the kind of place that tears everything down to rebuild. They don't really like cherish old buildings or um, it's a strange Western American sort of vibe that way where it's, it's not about preservation. It's about progress, I guess. <laughs> um, but there are some things that are still around 
And um, I lived for a couple of years right down the street from um, the church where he was where he was waked from. Wow. And it's still there. Um, the church, the, the, the denominations changed, but the church is pretty much it looks if you've seen photos of the day, it's intact. Um, but, you know, the, the neighborhood he grew up in, uh, the central district here was sort of the African-American hub of Seattle's culture. Um, and uh, it's where the jazz clubs were. It's where the, uh, you know, the, the after hours clubs, the juke joints, like it was a very apparently lively um, part of it was because Seattle was very segregated. Um, and so the community was forced into one area. But when you hear people, old timers from Seattle talk about the central district, just the the vibrant culture. And it makes so much sense that so much sense that somebody like Jimi Hendrix would come from that environment, sort of urban, but on sort of the edge of the world. And, you know, Seattle's like California, you know, you turn to the left and you're looking out to the edge of the world. It's the Pacific. Like what, what else is out there? And I can, I, I, it just seems very poetic that this would be where Jimi Hendrix is from such an urban environment. But then you go, 20 miles inland and you're in the mountains and it's magical. And so there's so much about this area that when I stopped to think about it, um, it kind of made perfect sense about him. Um, have you spent any time in Seattle? Do you, you know, have you walked his streets at all? Did you, was that ever important to you to take in his, his sort of vibe that way? Oh, you know, I think I've always felt more of that connection, uh, in London, and in New York, which is really where yeah. the, the person that we knew, the artist that we knew, really flourished. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I've I've done the Experience Hendrix tours. Last year, we did two tours, and so I got to know Janie very well. And uh, it was a very interesting full circle because I, you know, I used when I was a kid, I used to have a Hendrix candle that I would light every time I practiced to try to connect with his spirit, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I think as time went on, I realized that, you know, that his, his magic was, was with him, you know, and when he passed on, he passed on. And, and so I've ne I've always thought that going to the grave site, going to the museum, things like that is, it's, has got no connection with him. And, and it, you know, it's just the thing that, it's just commerce, you know, uh, and, and so it sometimes it rubs me the wrong way. Kind of like when they first started doing all the uh, the reissues of, you know, leftover tracks and things like that. I, it just kind of hurt me in a way because I thought, well, he was such a perfectionist. It's so much a part of his story, how he drove people insane with how much time he spent perfecting you know, his music, his recorded music, and the thought that all of the stuff that he hated is being released uh, with more publicity than what he got when he was alive. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't believe he's anywhere right now. He's just, he's dead, you know, but so, but if, if the science fiction was true and his spirit was around, I think he'd be really upset. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that whole posthumous release thing whether it's in uh i guess it afflicts a lot of the arts right you see it with authors whose letters or unfinished manuscripts either get finished or released or filmmakers who you get the the the, the missing scenes um 
How, how will you control for that? Because you strike me as somebody that has um, quite an archive or quite an output. It, it seems like there's a lot of Joe Satriani material. Um, how will you control for that? Well, one thing you should do, I think, if you're any artist like myself in, in the situation is there, there's a couple of things that have, that have come to my mind over the last decade, which is uh, you know, you, we're all going to die. So, you know, you got to be thinking about your exit strategy <laughs> and you, and you go, it's sort of like, here's my analogy. One day you wake up dead and, uh, as you're leaving, you go, oh, I didn't clean the garage, which means that my family is going to have to clean the garage, you know? And you're like, why didn't I just clean it and then pass on, you know, that way I'm not leaving them with a mess in the garage. So, I thought to myself, you know, I should really get it together. I'm not going to leave them with stuff that is annoying, that doesn't make any sense, that might uh, cast a bad light on the legacy. And at the same time, what is it that would help the family once you do go? And obviously, it's having your affairs in order in general, you know. And so that means we'll get it together now. So that when you pass on, everyone says, well, man, that guy just got everything together <laughs> for us before he left. And, well, you know, how thoughtful, you know, uh, the opposite is like, like when I heard about Aretha Franklin not having a will, I just thought, what? <laughs> it's like, how does somebody so famous, so successful with so many lawyers, you know, on payroll, uh, not you know, take 10 minutes to say, oh yeah, you know, let's just open up a trust and it goes there. You know, it, it baffles the mind, you know? So, um, you know, most of us are of a much simpler profile than Aretha did, you know? So it's, it's actually easier, but I've thought about that. And, uh, on the more practical sense, sometimes when I go through my hard drives, I'm, I'm pointing over here cause they're all over there behind the camera. Um, I go, if, if I died tomorrow, would I want someone to put that out <laughs> and say, unreleased tracks from Joe? I'd be like, no, okay, delete. <laughs> Get rid of stuff, you know, and, and I'm the kind of artist that I'll, tr I'll write enthusiastically with 100%, you know, positive spirit, 10 songs a day. And then tomorrow I'll go and I'll listen to him and I'll go, what was I thinking? It's like, wow, you erase that before anybody hears it, you know, <laughs> and so you got to clean, you know, you got to clean house, I think, as, a, uh, as an artist. It's a good idea to do that. I think it's good to review stuff you, because there are hidden gems yeah. that I think need uh, to be uh, looked at again. And you may find that they can be reformulated or you didn't understand them. But that's, I'm not talking about the gems. I'm talking about the obvious scraps that, you know, once an unscrupulous, uh, you know, uh, benefactor gets a hold of them uh it, it might actually be more of a, an emotional pain for your survivors you know um and so i i've known quite a few people who've had famous parents who passed on and they didn't and it was a mess and and they and they are still embroiled in their parents stuff instead of just being who they are living their life you know what i mean and and if they have kids it's even more confusing because then you're always wondering why, why are my parents always like embroiled in something that my grandparents did, you know? Uh, it's all sort of like we owe it to the, our, our kids to uh, 
to make them feel free to be who they are and, and, and not to be burdened by the legacy that we leave, you know. I've, I've wondered about that point with some of the things like the reissues around um, the Miles Davis catalog. Like, it's incredibly fun to have that box set with every note recorded around the Bitches Brew sessions. <laughs> but, like, I like knowing it exists, but I don't really, it's not like it's something you could sit down and enjoy the way you could sit down and enjoy the 20 to 40 minutes that he and Teo Macero actually labored over and edited and crafted into that final album, you know, the power of that music. So I don't know how to, even as a fan, I don't know how to contextualize that. It's like, I, I want it, but I don't really need it. And I don't even really consume it. (laughs) I know it's, it's odd. I mean, I suppose if we try to argue in favor of it, we'd say that if, you know, unearthed uh, in Vienna was a chest filled with Mozart second tier ideas, we would be all over that thing. <laughs> you, know, you know, even though we, you know, you and I may not listen to Mozart every day, we'd still be like, I got to hear that. Whatever it is, I got to hear it. And uh, so, you know, I, I understand that contextually, once you're gone and, and things move on, you have no way of knowing what tomorrow's world is like and how your scraps may actually be incredibly relevant. So that's all good. And, and I, I, for one, would want to open up that chest with Mozart, you know, second tier cops that he didn't like just to see what was there. Uh, but you're right. It's, it's a funny thing. You want to know what's there. You may not consume it every day. You may not buy the vinyl, the CD, the, the box set, or, you know, the streaming version, whatever, but, uh, it, it's, it's complicated it shouldn't be, but it is, it's, a, and, and, but I think that the way I look at it is that if there's a human cost to it, I know that out there in the business world, it's completely separate from the family. But I think that if, uh, you're, you know, if your last name is Mozart, you're still burdened and, and, uh, you know, by the legacy uh of the great 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 grandfather and uh uh but yeah and besides being a beneficiary and you know get all the notoriety that goes with it but you're still i I, it's different from being just who you are i mean think about it you know it's the whole thing about the american dream is that everyone's from somewhere else you come here you start fresh you can be whoever you want to be and that was the the difference from the way the Europeans thought everything was connected to the family and the family name. And, uh, and we've seen all those stories about how the, the super powerful, wealthy families, the, the kids just suffer and crash and burn because it's just too much of a burden. All, all that, uh, 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 what's the word I'm thinking of? Um, uh, all, all that, um, uh, well, then let's just say the family legacy and power and money is weight for yeah, some reason. That's right. You know? That's right. There's uh, expectation, there's sense of like self-worth that I deserve this. And do people want, do people want to associate with me because of my name and legacy or because of who I am as a individual? Yeah, I can, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, to, without, I, I'm, I'm making it bigger than it really your question was, but I, I remember being a, 
you know, young guitar player, and there was a uh, a really cool head shop record store place that opened up at the Roosevelt Field shopping mall, just about two miles from my house. And and uh, my mother was kind enough to go in there one day, and and because she had heard through me that they had Hendrix bootlegs. And I was just like, I had to get this bootleg, you know, what was it, you know? And, um, <laughs> so she, <laughs> I, I, I can't, I can't explain the scene. It was so funny. It was so early seventies. It was, it's like a joke. It's like out of a bad movie or something, but, uh, but God bless my mother. She walked in there and she said, I'm interested in the Hendrix bootleg. So don't tell me you don't have it, <laughs> you know? So, uh, she procured the bootleg for me. Which you know was everything was under the table back then, and uh, but when I got it, I hated it. I was I couldn't understand it. It was like I I, th I thought this isn't Jimi Hendrix. What is this? Jimi Hendrix playing with Curtis Knight or something like that? I mean, I, I was too young to understand what I was listening to, but uh, I remember thinking as the years went on, as I started to really become more of a human being and and understand the world a little bit more, I thought, how did that happen? How, why, who made this thing happen? And you start to realize, ah, oh, greed, that's all it was. Someone just said, I got something that, that I can make money on and I don't care who gets hurt, who tarnished, I'm just going to sell it in any way I can. Even if, you know, suburban kids have to drag their mothers into a head shop <laughs> and buy something under the table. The most ungodly <laughs> scenarios. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> I've always had that funny thing about that. Although, you know, I have to say, I love the, like, I know the, the like Janie and, and Henry Brown and just like, you know, the, the, the relatives of Jimmy, they're all such wonderful people. And I, and I love being, you know, the, the privilege of being associated with that group and being able to play Jimmy's music on stage last year was just so great. It was just, it was a wonderful experience. Um, so th there's a lot of good that comes from it. So I don't want to seem like I'm complaining about it. No, no, no. And, and it, it's, it's, it is a complicated topic. I think one of the, um, I, I was thinking about Hendrix also in the context of, um, I was listening to the, um, there's a Spotify playlist that um, it says you made. So I'm going to assume that you made it. I did. Um, I did. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a collection of your ballads. Oh, and, okay. Um, I was going through it and, um, you know, a lot of times the, and I hope you'll forgive me for saying this, but the guys that are like in the guitar virtuoso camp or category aren't necessarily associated with the blues. You know, they kind of come from like a post classic rock sound or the fusion tradition. What I don't, I'm, I think you see what I'm articulating, even if I'm not articulating it well. They're not, they're not necessarily identified as blues players. Right, but yeah. to your ballad work, um, I, I mean, it, that's, that's almost, I heard it, it was, it was, it would have been impossible not to hear it. And, um, and I was listening to Come On Baby, oh, yeah. the melody to that, it was, it was, you know, some of my favorite Hendrix songs, I think of, uh, Third Stone from the Sun, or Cries Mary, um, these songs with just great, great melodies, yeah. and um, and I think that that really comes through in your ballad work. And I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about your relationship with 
um, like how do you incorporate your influences um, and, and, and sort of transmute them? How do you not become a mimic? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, it helps if you're, um, if you're not burdened with runaway talent. <laughs> where you can imitate anybody because you know in what i've noticed in terms of when it comes to musicianship if you can you will and that's something i've noticed ever since i was a a very young teacher that if a student could play fast they will play fast and if and if they don't have that ability they look for other things to do to impress the audience you know the audience of one or a group of people however big it might be um, I, I had this experience because, you know, I, I started teaching when I was in high school. And so I was teaching kids that were a little younger than me. And I taught some of the teachers in the high school. And so I very quickly got to see the difference between kids and grownups. And then also, uh, very often some of the kids like Steve, I would come with his friend because they didn't have enough money to, you know, pay on their own. So they would take group lessons. And right away you go, okay, this kid is amazing. His friend, not so much. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you begin to realize like, wow, I mean, you know, you see things that students are doing and you go, oh, you know, what if I looked at myself the same way? What assessment would I make? And, uh, you know, there's, there's part of like that personality, like, uh, like if someone decides to go running, they, some person takes a, and that easygoing pace and says, I'm just going to cruise for the next two hours. And then you have the other people who say, all right, I'm just going to see how fast I can run today. And they just take off and then they don't run so long. And so in, in music, uh, as with just in basic personality, we see that all the time. Some people go right to the edge of what they're capable of doing. And that's, that's what the, the artistic space that they like to occupy and other people have this way of just taking two steps back and saying, okay, I'm just going to hang back here because this is comfortable. And I know I can get through the next 12 hours <laughs> being just like this, you know. Uh, and, it, and as I started to realize that, I started to look at my heroes at the time, which were the mid and late 60s guitar players. And I thought, okay, I, now I know how to organize Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, <laughs> Jeff Beck, you know, all these players. And, and I started to see the personality and how it affected how they would go and play. You know, like Jeff Beck would go right to the edge of the cliff, do something that would just totally blow your mind. He might crash and burn, and then he would stop. And then he would say, okay, I'm going to do something else. Give me a second to regroup, you know. Uh, so his buddy, Eric Clapton, total opposite personality, never went to the cliff. He just two steps back from the cliff. And shares the view with everybody and never makes you feel like he's going to crash and burn or miss a note or anything. He's just always with everybody. And, other, you know, other performers are different versions of that where they just have to be in front of everybody. They're the scout. They make all the mistakes. They find all the gold. You know, they're, they're, they're not the second line or the third line. You know, they may not write all the greatest stuff, but they're the ones that set the tone. They are the ultimate influencers, the pioneers, you know what I mean? And every once in a while, you find a very interesting combination of all these elements and players. Sometimes it takes a whole lifetime for you to look back and say, wow, I always thought that was 
the one. No, it turns out he or she was the one that was doing it. You know, uh, it. I know this is a slightly tangential, but I I used to think about that when I thought about like George Harrison, mm. uh, Keith Richards. That you know, you'd look at one record at a time, and you go like, well, okay, George is doing this, but uh, you know, like. Oh my God! Look what Pete Townsend doing at the same time, or Jimi Hendrix, or something. But then, over a period of decades, you look back and you go, "Oh my God!" George Harrison wrote some of the most amazing stuff and laid down some of the most perfect, like never, never would you ever challenge what he played and how he wrote it and the choices he made. And you go, "All the time, I was looking at this guy with all the lights and the feathers and everything," but actually. <laughs> This demure fellow with a good sense of humor was actually laying down the heavy shit, you know. Uh, it, it's 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 a conundrum uh, in in a way. It's the challenge of being in the entertainment industry to not uh, get distracted by flashy lights <laughs> and shiny things. You know what I mean? Um, so, it, as that is sort of an introduction in in me growing up, listening to everything my parents jazz age kids were playing all the time coltrane miles davis uh all the way into motown and and uh, funk music uh my siblings being rock and roll generation kids my brother turning me on to john lee hooker and muddy waters because he was a few years ahead of me and you know i'd hear him playing blues harp you know uh along to these records and i was like wow this is greatest stuff i ever heard in my life you know so it's all part of me i can't help but do that I, I mean i'd like to say i'm in total control of the way that i play and i've made those choices on purpose but in fact i'm just being joe you know what i mean and and so i was raised by my parents and my siblings and i'm sort of a sum total of all the records they gave me you know what i mean as they left the house when they grew up and they said oh yeah you can have these singles and i'd be like thank you <laughs> and I devoured the Dave Clark Five, and I devoured John Lee Hooker and Wes Montgomery and Miles Davis and everything that the whole family was laying on me, and and I watched them experience. And uh, so that's what I think that's what you're hearing because I can't help but show it. It just comes out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that. It's it. There, you, you, you. Uh, there's a lot of tangents to to pull apart there and talk about. And I know uh, our time together is starting to uh, to run out, so we won't get to talk about all that. But there, there's a lot in there. And um, you know, the George Harrison bit alone is he's fascinating. He's so fascinating. I think you know you, you said it. It's it, his it's his sort of taste is unbelievable. Like yeah, forget this. If just a songwriter, he'd be you know, he'd be up here. Um, but then you think about just the, those melody lines that he lays down on his own songs. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And I think the thing about George and not being flashy is that the more time that elapses, I think the, the greater the appreciation is for him. Right. It's sort of like, that's what happens. The quiet one emerges <laughs> over time. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's really, it's, it's really, but something you said at the beginning of your answer, um, it's, it's, it's actually very funny to me because I, I spoke to Jorma Kaukinen a few weeks ago wow. and we were talking about, um, you know, his love for uh, Reverend Gary Davis. And, um, 
we were talking about how, you know, Gary Davis is a massive influence on him. And he said, you know, I was never good enough to mimic him. And yeah. I would play his songs as faithfully as I could, but I played them as me. And he said, you know, I'd always, I'd always get shit because people would say, oh, you know, that's not how the Reverend played it. He's like, well, that, that's, that's, I'm not, you know, the, you have the recordings of Reverend Gary Davis playing it. You don't need me yeah. <laughs> playing Gary Davis. Um, it's, what makes it interesting is that he's, you know, he's bringing his interpretation to the songbook. And um, I, I feel like that's, that's really what you're doing. And it's not a specific songbook, but it's, it's, it's the guitar tradition. And it's, yeah. you know, it's an it's like you just add another block to it or another mile of the highway. Um, and it's this long road that um, that people contribute their sort of stretch of highway to. Um, so to 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 go into the home stretch with you, I, I've read that. Um, and I'm wondering if you're still doing this. But over the over the summer, it sounds like when you're um, when it became clear that you weren't going to be able to go out in support of the new record. Um, it sounds like you got right back to work. Are you, are you still working on the two projects you've talked about in other interviews? Yes. I've, I've got those <laughs> songs up on the board over there. Uh, and I've been working on them, uh, just like every day. And, and, uh, my keyboard player singer is Australian. And so he's stuck in Sydney. Uh, my drummer and bass player, uh, in LA proper and a little bit outside of LA is my other keyboard player, co-producer, editor, Eric Hudia. And so, um, yeah, there's files flying back and forth uh, as long as Comcast allows me to, <laughs> to upload and download. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, I kind of knew when I got back from doing a promo tour in early February of this year that most likely the European tour that was going to start April 15th was going to get canceled. And um, so, you know, behind the scenes, those conversations were happening before anybody knew that there was going to be any kind of lockdown anywhere in the United States. So, but um, because I, uh, I knew a few doctors and because uh, I have an extensive network of friends and coworkers in Europe who were experiencing the pandemic in its earlier stages, I knew what was coming and my gut told me there's no way to do this. There is absolutely no way to justify trying to make money with rock and roll while this is happening. This might be, a, you know, death might be a consequence, right? So, um, you know, if I think that I went through what everybody else uh, went through, whether they were planning on, you know, planning a garden or, or launching a world tour and an album is kind of disbelief. Like, cause you think, okay, I've been through a lot, but this is a new one. And, and, uh, so there's no playbook for this one. What does an instrumental guitarist do with a new album and a tour? Uh, you know, what do they, what do they do in the face of a pandemic? And, um, it, the, the monumental loss, uh, of all that, rock and roll fantasy and economy was too much you know to think about in one like really coherent moment so it took days and weeks and just phone calls and emails and then finally everybody started to realize this is so serious and we have to start putting things off and then you reach out to your other people 
and you realize they're just a little behind you in the curve of realization about how bad this is going to be, you know. Uh, I do, I, I was really happy to, to, to find out that my partners at uh, Sony Legacy felt like I did, which was, if there ever was a time to release a record, it should be now. Let's not think like if we hold on to the record for six months, we'll be lucky and it'll be a hit record. Let's just forget about all that. And let's just take one step back from commerce and say, what are we doing this for? Like, what is music for? What, what, what are, as a musician and as a company, what purpose are we trying to fulfill here? Besides the obvious thing, we all need money to get along in life. That's obvious. But at some point, like the baker says, I know things are tough, but I'm just going to go down to the shop and make some bread because that's what I do and people eat. I, I often thought about that when I'd see stories about war-torn Iraq, uh, Lebanon, and still there are people out going to a cafe and I see they're eating croissants and I'm thinking, who the hell woke up at four in the morning in this bombed out city to, to bake? You know what I mean? That's like human spirit, right? So I thought this is nowhere near as bad for me. So the conversation was really short where I said, look, I really think we should just release the album just like it was before. The campaign will be weird. I can't show up <laughs> like, <laughs> like I usually do. We'll probably take the biggest hit in physical sales that we've ever seen in my 35-year career. But let's do it anyway because I'm a musician and my job is to make music for people like the bakers is to bake bread for people. So people still got to eat. People still need music. I'm the guy. So we'll just go ahead with it. Luckily, the pandemic will be over someday and I'll go back to the other model of you know promoting an album. So it's easy. It sounds a little bit lighter when I discuss it with you like this, but uh, with all the emotion taken out of it, but it was really heartbreaking to think that a record that I love so much would not get its day in the sun. So, um, but I am, I'm joined with thousands of artists who are in the same predicament and, and very few as lucky as me that had a good relationship with a, uh, with a company like Sony who been with me for decades and who understood and who were willing to release the music for the right reasons, you know what I mean? And then we all just, we, we're learning every day, like how to keep the commerce part going. It's an important part of it. So we're not shying away from it, but we, you know, you have to admit like, okay, it's people aren't going out to see you in concert. You're not going to sell CDs at the merch table. There is no merch table. <laughs> you know, it's just all crazy. So. Yeah. Is, um, have you, have you, did you work remotely, um, with your, um, with your bands in the past or is this, is this model even new for you? It's not, uh, entirely new because I think starting, um, in 99, Eric and I got this idea to do, um, three albums, a rock album, a techno album, and a classical album, just the two of us with computers in the box and i brought it to the my my buddies at sony music and i said 
this is what I'd like to do. This was right after the Crystal Planet album and the G3 tours. And, and you know, things were changing. File sharing had just yeah. laid waste to the world of music, you know. And uh, people don't understand that, but just catalog sales and new records, just like 60 to 80% drop in all sales. Devastated musicians and the, and the music industry. And everyone was figuring out, like, what to do next, you know. And so the label was like, well, how about a techno record? That sounds interesting. That could be fun. And we thought, yeah, we're into that. So uh, I would work at home and I would send MIDI files to Eric down in L.A. And then every, once a week, I jump on a plane uh, and stay down there for a day and a half. And he would record me playing in the newly configured arrangements that we had figured out. Everything was DI, his whole living room and Studio City was turned into a studio. It was, it was just a crazy scene. And, uh, but we, that's how we did the record. And, and that became Engines of Creation, a total recorded in the box album, more trance than techno. But um, so what I realized is that, well, I could do a lot of work at home. And, and with the help of my other co producer, John Kuniberti, he started to help me put together this small little space shuttle recording system at home. And um, <laughs> I have to say, I went kicking and screaming because I love being in a professional studio. I love those million dollar rooms with beautiful sound and you get a drummer and they can spread all their stuff out and play loud. And I just love that, you know? And, and so I, there's no real romance about recording by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that's great is that you're you're so not self-conscious, you know, and so more personal things come out. Uh, but what what I think is missing is your most trusted friends telling you to do it again. And that that I've always benefited from that, whether it is just recently Jim Scott sitting there for six hours waiting for me to come up with a good solo instead of the 170 solos, you know, <laughs> uh, or John Kuniberti looking at me like, you're not going to play that, are you? <laughs> you know, I like that. I, I like it when your drummer, your bass player just says, man, this song is horrible, you know, can we do another one? It, that interaction is golden. It's great, you know, and not only does it, I think, uh, force you to be better, but you create great memories and, and, lasting friendships from just that experience of recording with people in a heightened state of awareness. Unfortunately, it costs so much money to be in a studio. That's why hardly anybody does it anymore. You know, everything gets recorded on laptops and things like that. All because we, we you know, the monetization of recorded music has been reduced to almost nothing. So uh, musicians have to figure out a way not to spend money. <laughs> And they have to become engineers and producers and multi-instrumentalists and everything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, so you know I'll tell you, you're not going to get an Andy or a Glenn Johns. That's the sad part about it. Those, you know, I mean, I've spent years watching John Kuniberti go out into the music room and move a microphone around my Marshall cabinet. And I'm just amazed at how he can tell where the best spot is for the microphone. And uh, we're on like the second generation of musicians who will never have that experience. They wouldn't know what to do with a microphone. 
You know what I mean? And so these super talented people that have created this enormous catalog of beautifully recorded music, uh, it's not there. It's not there anymore. I love uh, that on a record where you can hear, um, I know you're not supposed to be able to hear it, but I love it when you can hear the mic placement and it's like, oh, I know, I know where that mic is in relation to the amp (laughs) to get that guitar set at that depth or, um, I love that. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> you don't get that with DI or what have you. But but again, it's also like what I, what I appreciate about what you're saying is there's a you have a proper level of nostalgia for it, but you're not. I, I don't hear you saying like everything else is invalid. You know? Oh, abs- absolutely not. It's just different. That's all. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, well, here's the obvious thing that I found very early on in my recording career is that. You're in a studio all day long. You're totally stressed out. It costs too much money. Everybody's arguing about this take, that take. You like take seven because you play great. The drummer likes take six because he got through it and played his best shit. You know, the the bass player is like still waiting to do the take that he thinks is great. And then all of a sudden someone says, oh, by the way, let's just do the solo right now. And you're like, well, I'm not ready to do my solo. I'm not in the right headspace. And I'd, I'd finish these sessions back in the old days and I'd go, I've just documented me being pissed off and playing my worst. It's like, what is, what is the point of this? You know? So the flip side is I'm at home now. And if I want to record 1000 guitar solos completely non-destructively, I can do that. And I can go and have lunch. I can go to the wine country with my wife for a weekend, come back and work on the solo again. And so in some ways, my audience is hearing me at my best finally. Rather than going, I don't know about that guy. It sounds like he wasn't really in the moment. <laughs> you know, I, the oh, composer man, the was good. <laughs> yeah. I, re- I remember uh, I was reading uh, Roger McGuinn once was talking about Mr. Tambourine Man. And, and, he, and I love that song and I love the recording. It's just something that unlocks something in my in my youth, you know, when I hear it. And I never thought of it as from a musician's point of view right as a someone who records music and he was saying how man that was like the 85th take and he said that was not the best take that was simply the take where most of us made the fewest mistakes so that became the single and i thought see i'm not alone (laughs) like even the birds had to go through this with their biggest like single you know and how important it must have been for them to do this bob dylan song and they had to do it 85 times, and it wasn't the best take for all of them. They all probably thought take 35 or 7 or you know, 52 was the real one, but they wound up with this one <laughs> because they finally, all of them got through it without stopping or something like that. You know? uh, and, and you find these things out that, that just, it just cracks you up you know, when you think about it and you go, oh, man, there's, there's no rule. There's nothing. Uh, and, and, but no matter what he could, he couldn't tell me any bad story about that song that would change the way it makes me feel. So there you go. That's right. Um, Joe, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your, uh, your generosity of spirit. And, uh, I don't know what's going on there, but, um, you look like you're about 17 and <laughs> I, I resent you for it. <laughs> 
I don't know. Must, must be the HEPA filter going on outside the door there. It's breathing fresh air. From I was going to say, you're using a newer version of Skype than I am or something, but <laughs> <laughs> it's so great to talk to you. Um, and uh, I, I wish you well and, um, you know, good luck getting through um, our, uh, <laughs> our American reality. But uh, it sounds like uh, you're well suited too. And I'm looking forward to hearing those records and seeing you back on the road. Thank you so much, Joe Satriani, Melissa from Mad Inc. PR, and Cynthia Parsons for making this interview happen. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. While you're grabbing our podcast, please also leave a review and rating. It's super helpful. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you so much. Be safe and stay in touch. <laughs>